I don't know, I'll yell as loud as I can, but my voice will probably run out here pretty soon. Okay, now, everybody, turn around, look up, go wow. Wow. Okay, this is just the low bay. We're not even in the high bay yet. <laughs> Welcome to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson, and this is part two of our series looking at NASA's plans to send humans back to the moon. I'm standing in the Vehicle Assembly Building, or VAB. It's at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. And this is the place where rockets really become rockets. It's a huge building that covers eight acres and stands 160 meters tall. This is the place where the Saturn V rockets were pieced together in preparation for launch during the Apollo missions. Took them about two years to finish it up. This, high, this low bay right here, this is where the second stage and third stage was processed. Second stage over here behind me, third stage over here. First stage was always done here in the middle of the transfer aisle. When you walk inside the VAB, nothing really prepares you for the sheer size of this structure. As you walk in, you're looking down this huge corridor, almost like an aisle in a warehouse. It's called the transfer aisle, and this is where the stages of the rocket are brought in. And as you look up, you can see multiple cranes, which are used to crane the pieces of the rocket and move them into the high bay. Two of these cranes can hold 325 tonnes and are operated with incredible precision. NASA say that the cranes are precise enough to be able to lower an object onto an egg without cracking it. And when you think about the precision that's required in building a rocket, it's unsurprising that NASA is so concerned about accuracy. The structure itself is also built like a fortress. Not only does it have to withstand the weight of the rocket and the crawler and all of this equipment, but it also has to survive in Florida, which is a place known for some pretty bad tropical weather. If you look at the concrete underneath you, it's probably about three to four feet deep in most areas and everything. There's one area up there where the uh, aft skirt, the, the uh, Saturn V set on, they say that's about 25 feet thick. You never tell an engineer you can have all the concrete he wants because he'll ask for more than what he needs. In the centre of the building, there's an angled marking on the ground, which was specifically used for the space shuttle. It showed NASA's engineers the precise angle at which the shuttle had to be turned so that it would fit through the gap into the high bays. The high bays are where the rocket itself is fully assembled and merged with the launcher. When you get down here and look up on the 16th floor there, that's where the openings are to go into the high bay. That opening there dictated how big we can make the shuttle wing because you had to turn it at a 45 degree angle, slip it in there, get it in the high bay, and then you had to set it back down in there. Now the high bays on the other far side there, behind me there, there's two high bays over there. That's where we kept the fuel tanks. Okay, they would come in from Louisiana. We'd take and put them in there. Two cell, fuel cells over there. The other two high bays over there, they were strictly for, for stacking and everything. And given the fact that the space shuttle had huge wings, NASA would shut down the building to minimise the chance of any wind catching hold of the wings and pushing the valuable payload into the building itself. When you lift the shuttle up, it takes two cranes. It takes this low bay crane here and then a the high bay crane. They pick it up in the middle, okay? And as, as they race, start racing, the nose of it, the, the, the back end of it, is starting to swing around until it gets, gets totally lifted up there. And then the high, high crane picks up the whole load of it. And that, that the uh, crane up there is 325 tons it can pick up in one, one lift. The shuttle didn't weigh but 100 tons at any given time. 
So we didn't put any of the payload in it till we got to the pad because of the fact that it would it would break over. Anywhere you had a level up here, you see these railings up here. There was there was a couple of guys up there with long poles with a rubber pad all on the end of it, just in case it started to swing. They were there to stop it because when it went through there, it was probably out about 18 inches on either side when it went through. So it was really 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 slow. Guys on the radio, you had a guy with a knee stop button in case he thought he seen something he could hit that and it would lock that that that. Uh, crane out right there. So these cranes are the original cranes. This one here got refurbished up here. The other ones have been, uh, they're original cranes from the Apollo days and the cabling are all the same. The old cables that we had there originally, that's how well we maintain and stuff out here. The other thing that may not surprise you is that NASA worked very closely with the Russians during the late 80s and early 90s, as NASA looked to integrate with the Mir space station. Long gone were the days of fighting over space technology, although there was still a level of healthy distrust between the two superpowers. NASA built a clean room in the VAB, specifically so that the Russian team could work with NASA on an airlock adapter, without giving them access to the more confidential parts of the facility. The Russians had a different airlock than we have, so they built, we built an adapter slug, which was I think of about 18 feet long, and it had their airlock on one end and ours on the other. And we processed it in there because that was where we could keep them from. This building right here is vanilla. You're not going to see anything in here that you can't, anybody can't see. There's pictures everywhere around the world on this thing. We put them in there because that was the first time we'd ever had Russians on, on, on this thing here. They had, we got buildings down there that you guys can't get into. Um, it's proprietary information in there. So we worked them in there. Um, I was in there for a while working with them and they were doing some work and had one through that we had the interpreter working with us and, we, and one of the engineers there, the Russian engineers wanted to go down and smoke a cigarette. So we says, yeah, go ahead, but you got to go outside, get the other guy, another escort, go outside the gate, you can smoke your cigarette. Well, somewhere along that line, they missed it and he went downstairs, threw his feet up on the desk and lights up. Talk about having a heart attack. So after about 10 minutes of almost have to go home and change your clothes, <laughs> we, we figured that, you know, guys, you need to go outside the gate. Oh, okay, because apparently they, they light a cigarette up wherever they feel like it. If it's sitting on top of flight hardware, fire one up, let's smoke. Um, it, 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 they do things a whole lot different than we do, so. And before we get too deep into everything that's happening right now at NASA in preparation for the Artemis missions, it's time for a quick word from our sponsors. In the last episode of Moonshot, we looked at where NASA has come from. And in this episode of Moonshot, Things are getting real, as NASA prepares to launch its SLS rocket, which will be used for the Artemis missions back to the moon. In preparation for the missions, NASA has been busy upgrading their facilities, including the VAB, to accommodate the new launch vehicle and its specific requirements. A lot of the flight hardware will come in through this door right here. The boosters and everything will come in from the other door there, because they're, they're shipped down from Utah. There's, there's a building there back behind there where we process all the, the boosters and everything because they, they come loaded. It's a solid propellant in there. You light one of them, they don't, they don't quit burning until they're burned all the way out. So 
really super, super dangerous. The minute one of those comes in here, that's the end of tours in here. Nobody comes in here unless you have special permission to come in here. Every component of the launch vehicle is mocked up and then assembled to give NASA confidence in their designs and the facility. And it also minimizes risks associated with having to make last minute changes once the real rocket is in the building. Mock it all up, make sure everything's working so when we get the real stuff in here, we don't have to start to start playing around. We don't definitely want torches and grindings and welding all done around flight hardware and everything. So. Things like the rocket boosters are not actually manufactured at the Kennedy Space Center, but are instead built in Utah and then transported to the Space Center for launch. For this reason, there are limits on the size of the components to make it easier for transport and safer in the event that something actually does go wrong. The boosters come in that door there, big, straight up then the straight up and over. We bring, we bring the aft skirt in first, the right, left, and then just start stacking off of that, okay? We would go from a th- three, three stack, which is three segments, to a four stack, which is a bit, bit more. Those have already been tested out there in Utah. We tested one at, at the max heat, and then we tested at, at minimum cooling out there. So those are ready to go and everything. Basically, they're, they are the old shuttle pieces, okay? We just added another segment to it and modif- just a little bit more modified. We're not going to recover these. It's just not cost effective to recover them. When they hit the water, there's a linear charge that goes up the side of it that will split them wide open and they'll sink and make, make a nice uh, reef for the fish. So, way out. The worst we're going to do is give a fish a headache when they fall in the ocean. Once the vehicle is assembled, the plan is generally to proceed to launch quite quickly. However, if something isn't working right, the whole assembly will be de-stacked and removed so any issues can be fixed. We have de-stacked before because we had some fuel leaks. We brought it back in here, took the order back off, put it back over in the uh, OPFs, and did the, did the uh, we had some 17-inch uh, fuel lines there that were leaking, and we, we finally figured out what was caused with the uh, bad seals. They weren't taking the cryos right and everything, so. Once the vehicle is assembled and merged with the mobile launch tower, the whole assembly will be transported out to the launch pad on what's called the crawler. The crawler is a huge machine that looks like an oversized tank. It weighs around 3,000 tons and can transport three times its weight. There are two crawlers and they were originally built for the Apollo missions. However, NASA is meticulous about servicing and upgrading their bespoke equipment, and so these vehicles will be used for many years to come. Yeah, pretty much. And like, the steel treads on this each weigh one ton. Um, the cleats on it. Each one? Yeah, the each one. The whole belt. No, no, no. Each each individual cleats weighs one, one ton. What? Wow. Yeah. Our next stop at NASA is to the crawler, and that noise that you can hear in the background is from maintenance work being done on the machine to keep it in good condition and prepare it for the Artemis missions. These crawlers were built, of course, for the Apollo program by Marion Power and Shovel, uh, which is a mining company, and they were built about 1965-66. This one was built after Crawler 1, and uh, but we chose this one to... Uh, go for the Artemis program and so we've done all the modifications to this crawler um, so it has the capability of carrying a heavy load. This is Bob Myers, one of the engineers who works on the crawler and we're standing directly under CT2, 
which is the crawler being used for the Artemis missions. Of course, basically, you know what the crawler does, it picks up the mobile launcher and the stack, carries it out to the pad, sets it down, and then, of course, backs away while it launches. And then once the launch is over, it goes back and picks up that mobile launcher, including the tower, and then brings it back here to the VAB or refurb site for uh, reconditioning so it can go for another launch. The crawler's top speed is about one mile per hour when loaded, which might sound pretty slow, but the truth is they would rarely travel that fast. When you think about the enormity of the structure that it's carrying, the engineers simply can't afford to have any issues along the way, so will often drive slower than the maximum speed to make sure there's no problems. I can tell you the crawler gets uh, 32 feet per gallon. Got that? 32 feet per gallon. Okay, so it's not real economical, but hey, it's not that we take it out that often, you know? The VAB is around 4.2 miles from launch pad 39B, which is the launch site for the Artemis missions. 39A is actually being used by SpaceX. So it will take the team around eight hours to drive the short distance out to the launch site. And given the time that it takes, they rotate drivers every two hours to make sure everyone maintains focus on the task at hand. But to say when you have something this large, it weighs out, the weighs that much, all that mass moving, it seems fast. But it, you can walk off the stairs and out walk it in a heartbeat. You know. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, we, it's, it's slow enough that somebody could come and take over you know, without a problem. Bob told us that a lot of the upgrades for the Artemis missions are mainly around replacing components on the crawler to make sure they're in the best condition for the new rocket and the mobile launcher, which will have the capacity combined to be much heavier than the Saturn V missions. Let's see, probably the most recent updates are the ones to carry this Artemis vehicle, and that includes strengthening all the trucks they put in uh, new steel. Uh, in order to make the truck stiffer. They put in new rollers. That's what the shoes ride on. You see those big circular objects on the trucks? Those are, those are big rollers. So they have brand new rollers and they made the material harder. So in order to carry the heavier load. Um, on top of that, we put new gel cylinders. That's what we use to jack the structure up and down. Those are all brand new. They carry a heavier load now than we used to. And we're talking about in full, when you get the full load on there, if we go all the way to the top, excuse me, of the Artemis program, we're talking about carrying close to 19 million pounds. Is that the maximum limit on it? That's about the maximum limit. That's carrying. Now, of course, down the road, that's 25 crawler and what you're carrying. So, yeah, that's a heck of a lot of weight for the crawler to carry. There are currently eight people who are qualified to drive the crawler, and it takes around a year to learn how to drive one. The biggest barrier to entry is actually getting time behind the wheel. The drivers are all engineers who work on the vehicles on a day-to-day basis, and keeping the crawler maintained is a constant job. So there's always, typically always something that we're trying to fix, maintain, or repair. You know, I mean, fix up or refurbish. Or, so yeah, the crawler's like a big ship. It's like a big ship on land. So you're always working on it. Bob has been working at the Kennedy Space Center for almost 40 years and says that working on the crawler is the best job in the world. And right after this break, 
we're taking the journey out to Launchpad 39B. Welcome back to Moonshot. I'm Christopher Lawson. And now it's time for us to head out to Launchpad 39B. This is the site where all the action will be happening when the Artemis missions launch, heading to the moon and beyond. The team at NASA has been busy preparing the launch site and the mobile launch tower to make sure everything works smoothly on launch day. And the person in charge of all these preparations is Regina Spellman. And I'm the senior project manager for the launch pad, which means I'm responsible for all the development activity out here. Um, once we become operational, it'll be turned over to our operations manager. But s- since we haven't been flying, it's been under a development mode. And so all the construction and all the updating projects, I'm responsible for that. Can you just explain what we're looking at? Yeah, so we're, we're here on ground level. We're looking up at the pad surface. This is a man-made surface. This is all concrete. Um, there's a lot of equipment and hardware underneath that pad surface. And then when you look up at the top of the slope, there's structure that comes up to the mobile launcher. And that's where we provide all the commodities. I, I, I tell everybody an example of like an RV park. You, know, you don't want to bring some things from home, and we have it. And, so, and um, things you, don't, you want to leave here. So um, you have, we connect all around the mobile launcher. And then the tall tower is where we have all the equipment that supports the vehicle itself. And you can even see on the mobile launcher tower the launch accessories. Those are the umbilical arms that will actually reach out and connect to the rocket. Just to help you picture this in your mind, the launch pad is in the centre of this relatively cleared area. And it sits on this man-made concrete structure in the centre of this kind of field. There are big fuel tanks on either side of the launch pad and a fair way from the main structure, which stores the liquid rocket fuel. It's stored separately to avoid any potential issues of combustion before launch. And there is a huge flame trench directly under the launch pad, which helps direct flames away from the launch site and out into the ocean. There's also huge water tanks, which help dump water all over the launch site immediately after launch. If you remember like a shuttle launch, you have the big white, that's the water from the ignition overpressure system. And these big towers that are, these were the first things that we built. Um, We started these back in 07. This is a lightning protection system because here in Florida, we have very active weather. And so the rocket will actually fly through the catenary system. And these are 600 foot tall towers. They don't look it, but when you think the mobile launcher is a good 350 feet tall and then those are another those are 600 feet tall Um, and so there's a uh, wires up there that protect the rocket the lightning protection system basically consists of all of these wires which surround the main launch site and they help protect the rocket while it's sitting on the launch pad and open up more possibilities for the launch to actually go ahead if we know that we have, we can d- detect the lightning and we can determine that there is no uh, damage to the rocket and we have we can get back to business quicker. And that's all of that investment um, has been put into the pad for that. So, so the rocket flies through the wires? Yeah, there's an opening and it's kind of hard to see right now, but it's like a pentagon shape and it flies through it. And that also kind of lines up where the rocket is because it'll sit right up there on the flat part. It, you know, you look at kind of like the tabletop part of the mobile launcher and there's the, the flame hole in the mobile launcher deck and that all that exhaust goes... 
you drive around, you'll see the, the deflector, but all that exhaust comes down through there. So um, pretty much everything the rocket needs, it gets from the mobile launcher, and then we give the mobile launcher everything it needs to in turn. So. You might also be wondering, how does the crawler actually leave the rocket at the launch pad? Because the crawler doesn't stay there for launch, it kind of drops the rocket off and then heads away to a safe distance. So the crawler actually goes underneath the mobile launcher um, and it comes up that pad surface and it straddles our flame trench. And it, um, the crawler goes across that and then it's, it lowers it down onto the, the mount mechanisms, which are like the vertical columns that you see there. And that provides the structural support. We have those same structural supports um, in the parking lot, in the, where, it's, where it's kind of a parking lot and in the vehicle assembly building, they have those same mount mechs. And so wherever the mobile launcher sits, those are its table legs. All the metal at the launch site and mobile tower is coated in a special coating which helps protect it from the enormous heat that's generated on launch. So all going well, the structure should be easily used for the next launch without too much refurbishment. It's like the coatings and the paint and everything are, are, take the high temperature. There's always going to be a little bit of refurbishment, but hopefully nothing is destroyed. Um, there's always going to, you know, the, the first launch we'll really know for sure, but because uh, we haven't used this. But you think, I mean, the pad surface, all this pad infrastructure out here is over 50 years old and we were able to reuse quite a bit. Most of what we've replaced was just to, you know, improve the technology. And um, so, I mean, some of the structures, the like the um, stairs and things are even from that. When we were demolishing the rotating service structure, our contractor um, was LVI out of New York, and they have taken down baseball stadiums and casinos and, I mean, a lot of big, big projects. And they, they said, what the heck did you paint this stuff with? <laughs> they were having the hardest time torch cutting it. Um, and we're like, it, you know, it takes a launch, it's going to take a torch. So. But as hard as the team works to protect the area from the heat generated by the rocket, there is always some damage done to the plant life in the area around the launch site. But that's not always a bad thing. There's a tree that's growing that I say is my nemesis because it's a um, it's invasive species and it's been growing since we haven't been launching. So we need to launch again and burn it down. <laughs> um, so it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and it just tells me, because I see pictures when we started and you barely see it on the mound and now it's quite a big tree. Um, but yeah, they, even the, the fence, we have a fence around for security. Um, there's a section of fence that we know is going to be sacrificial and we have to come in and replace it after every launch. So um, you'll see our telephone poles have a, uh, as we drive around, have a pole in front of them. Um, the light poles, they have a, well, sorry, the light poles have like what looks like a telephone pole in front of it and that's to protect it from the blend. So there's a lot of experience out here. I mean, we're the third program launching out of here and we try to learn from all those lessons and just kind of take it to the next level. This episode of Moonshot was hosted and edited by me, Christopher Lawson. The music throughout this episode is by Breakmaster Cylinder, and our ad music comes from Epidemic Sound. Andrew Millist designed our amazing cover artwork. Remember, if you love what we do with the show, head on over to Patreon and support us. That's patreon.com slash moonshot. Supporters can get access to an ad-free feed of the podcast, along with some great merchandise. That's patreon.com slash moonshot. We'll be back in two weeks' time with part three of our NASA series, And next time, we want to know what we're going to eat in space. We'll see you then.